Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hello, hello, and welcome. Welcome back from your weekends. Uh, and welcome to our show. I think I actually need to mute something here that's not muted. There we go. Doesn't usually happen. There we go. So um, a little bit later on the show today, we're going to talk to political reporter Andy Linsky. Uh, there's so much going on politically right now. In fact, if you're listening at one o'clock, uh, you are aware that President Trump was, and for all I know, still is speaking in North Carolina. Uh, and we're just cutting away to do this show. Uh, it gives me an opportunity, since the first segment here is going to be about COVID-19, uh, SARS-CoV-2, it gives me a, a chance to fact-check him in real time. He went on and on about one of the great accomplishments being the, uh, the manufacture and procurement and distribution of ventilators appearing not to know that state of care in COVID-19 is to delay or avoid the use of ventilators uh, whenever possible. Uh, one of the reasons there are enough ventilators right now is that clinicians ultimately decided they were getting worse outcomes. They actually had the opportunity sometimes by uh, under duress. They didn't have enough ventilators. And then they discovered the people who weren't getting the ventilators seemed to be having better outcomes, which is unfortunately how medical research is being done right now. So anyway, um, uh, our first guest, I'm so excited about this. Ever since I heard her on Noah Feldman's uh, show, Deep Background in early April, I have coveted uh, her as a guest because her um, she explains things very lucidly. Uh, so with us today is, although she, she's just back from vacation today. So she may be somewhat loose, less lucid. You know, that's like, that'll knock 15% off anybody's lucidity. Uh, Angela Rasmussen is with us, a virologist, associate research scientist at the Center of Infection and Immunity at Mailman School of Public Health uh, at Columbia University. She's a contributing writer to Forbes magazine. We are excited to have her here today. Welcome, uh, Dr. Rasmussen. Thank you so much for having me. And I'll try to be as lucid as possible um, in my post-vacation state. All right. So, um, you know, uh, in a way, we're propelled uh, into another discussion by another public announcement today that seems probably not completely unconnected to the beginning of the Republican National Convention. Uh, over the weekend, President Trump was kind of teasing the idea that he was unhappy with the FDA uh, for their slowness for greenlighting things. And he says he said the deep state or whoever over there uh, is slowing things down too much. Today, uh, we get an emergency use uh, authorization for convalescent plasma in a pretty extravagant claim about uh, its uh, constituting or providing a 35% uh, outcome improvement, um, which, I don't know, I went through all the literature today, I couldn't really see that. But but it, it, this does seem to be a case uh, of, well, I'll just let you react rather than set it up. But w what was your reaction when you heard that? My reaction, my first reaction was actually at least they weren't issuing an EUA for oleandrin, which is the um, poisonous chemical that the MyPillow CEO has been advocating that the FDA issue an EUA for. Um, my second reaction, though, was that it's good if convalescent plasma does have some benefit. I mean, certainly any type of reduction 
in symptom severity or improvement in clinical outcome is going to be a good thing and it's going to have some public health benefit. But the observational study that they're basing that on doesn't really show that. And if anything, I suspect that convalescent plasma um, offers a more incremental benefit than anything else. Uh, we already have some other treatments that do offer such an incremental benefit, including remdesivir. It's great to have one more thing um, available for treating people with severe COVID-19, but it's certainly not, it's not anything I would consider to be a, you know, a wild medical breakthrough that is going to completely change the course of this pandemic in this country. Right. And so we should just make it clear, uh, convalescent plasma is the plasma, plasma from people who, who have had uh, COVID-19. Uh, the observational study, the key word there being observational, this is a pretty large scale Mayo Clinic study, but it's not a uh, controlled or randomized uh, study. So uh, in in cases where people got convalescent plasma and got better, uh, it's hard to know whether they got better because they got convalescent plasma or for some other reason. This is kind of the opposite of what you want, right? You want uh, you want to be able to isolate the effect of the thing that you're testing. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So without a without a control group. Um, as you would have in a randomized control trial, you really can't rule out that there was some other reason that the patients who received convalescent plasma got better compared to another group of patients who did not get that and just got the standard of care. And that's exactly what an observational trial is. It's saying, okay, people who got convalescent plasma got better, but we don't really have another group of people that we can compare it to. So we can't say for sure that it was actually convalescent plasma that had to, that had that effect. It could have been just that they were getting better anyways. It could have been some other medication that they received. It could have been um, when they showed up at the hospital to seek treatment. Could be a lot of different things. So that's why those control groups are really important. I think another problem with um, an announcement like today's where the weight of the president is behind it, uh, the FDA director is kind of dragooned probably into it. Uh, but, you know, a lot of publicity attending it. It's going to make it harder to do controlled randomized studies, uh, I would assume anyway, uh, of a convalescent plasma in the future, because those people who believe the kind of hype that they just heard, that there's a some kind of 35% improvement, uh, are going to be very reluctant to be in a, in a randomized study where, uh, or, or in a controlled study where they might be getting a placebo. Who's going to want to do that if they believe already uh, from what they've been told in the news that convalescent plasma works so well? Well, that's exactly right. And that's what we've seen before um, with medical announcements that the president has made. Um, for example, with hydroxychloroquine, the president has touted that as a miracle drug and said that it's fantastic and everybody should be taking it. And why aren't we taking it? And there's really no um, good randomized clinical trial data to suggest that it actually has any benefit, whether taken as a treatment or as a prophylactic to prevent SARS coronavirus 2 infection. Um, however, because the president said that, people have really persisted in saying that hydroxychloroquine is, in fact, a, a great drug to treat COVID-19 and that it's some kind of conspiracy that, you know, none of the clinical trials are showing what the president said they would show. Um, so it's really, really dangerous to, to incorporate experimental results, um, especially from clinical trials, into sort of political talking points. I mean, that's where people lose, as you said, they, they lose the willingness to participate in the randomized clinical trials that we need to actually assess drug efficacy. And I'm really, really concerned that this is going to extend beyond drugs 
to potentially the vaccines that are currently in phase three uh, clinical trials right now. Right. And we'll come to that. Although just to back away right now from the president and from political interference, is it also kind of true that it seems to me that it's kind of true that that in a way, because, you know, they've basically been looking for therapies for a disease as it unfolded as a pandemic, which is a suboptimal way to go looking for uh, things that work. You know, there's sort of been a lot of this kind of stuff, stuff that's sort of semi-observational and maybe even semi-anecdotal. It's clinicians saying, you know what, we've been trying this and, and we seem to be getting some pretty good results. And because it's sort of battlefield conditions, right? You've got people who are sick who are maybe going to die. Um, so, you know, whether it's the steroids or anti-clotting drugs or remdesivir, you know, to a certain degree, there's kind of a way in which this is the state uh, in which clinical practice and research are kind of bumping against each other. Yeah, that's, I think that's very fair to say. And it's certainly understandable um, because we did not have as much money going into studying what kind of drugs would be good for highly pathogenic coronavirus infections prior to this pandemic. Um, the funding cycle has always been kind of boom or bust. So after SARS Classic and after MERS emerged, there was some additional funding for this. And then once we saw that those were not becoming pandemics, that funding kind of went away. So it's really hard for researchers to study this in advance if they don't have any financial support to actually do that because they need to be able to afford employees um, and postdocs and graduate students to actually conduct that work. So unfortunately, now we're in a situation where we didn't have anything ready to go so people are kind of relying on, you know, observations from physicians who are treating these patients coming in with a, a pretty broad range of different clinical symptoms. Um, and certainly for some of them, some drugs may work better than others, uh, but we can't tell if we don't do a randomized clinical trial. And we can do a randomized clinical trial if people are demanding, you know, we need to take these drugs right now. Um, and certainly physicians should not be withholding treatments that they think might work for their very severely ill patients. So it's certainly understandable for physicians to try to kind of throw the kitchen sink at a patient who's really severely ill. If it might mean the difference between life and death, they can treat them with a drug that's already available and maybe that patient will have a good response. The unfortunate thing is that we can't really get any actionable information that can be applied to other patients from that type of approach. And so really what we should have had was better drug development before this pandemic even started, more pandemic preparedness, because right now, as you said, it's really battlefield conditions and we need to try to do the best we can by all the patients that present for treatment. Um, and sometimes that means that we don't really have time to do the robust, um, well-controlled randomized clinical trials that we'd like to do. So, you know, when I first heard you talking to Noah Feldman, I think it was just right at the beginning of April, um, and you were uh, at a very molecular level explaining how some of these therapeutic drugs could work if they did work. Uh, I think remdesivir might have been even in the mix at that point. But are you surprised? I mean, I realize three months, three and a half months, that's nothing in the, in the continuum of normal medical and scientific research. But given the battlefield conditions, given the amount of resources potentially available, are you surprised that we don't have more therapies three and a half months later, that we, we don't have a second generation antiviral? We know from AIDS that it's usually that second generation group of antivirals that's going to be considerably more effective than the first thing you could put your hands on. Um, you know, that, that we don't really have a particularly robust group of therapies to treat this disease. 
Yeah, so I, I think that I'm not really surprised that we don't have more antivirals because antivirals uh, for a variety of reasons have been incredibly difficult to develop. Often antivirals can be very specific for one family of viruses. Um, remdesivir is uh, an antiviral that works against many different RNA viruses, um, which coronaviruses are RNA viruses and they remdesivir works by preventing the enzyme that copies the virus's genome from working, from actually allowing the virus to replicate. So it's not surprising that we don't have more of those because remdesivir itself was the result of years of R&D and actually Gilead decided to apply it to this because it already failed a clinical trial for treating Ebola virus. Um, one of the things about remdesivir, which there actually is randomized controlled clinical trial data for, is that it does have a benefit in that it reduces hospitalization time. But uh, we don't know if it would have more of a benefit because it is an antiviral if patients were treated with it early. But this kind of gets into the preparedness issue as well. It's not just that we don't have a lot of antivirals to choose from. It's that maybe remdesivir hasn't been tested in the right circumstances. So it's been used so far to treat hospitalized patients. And that's the, the group that it shows a reduction in, in hospital, hospital time uh, for but maybe remdesivir, because it's an antiviral, would work better if you gave it to patients right when they were diagnosed, before mm -hmm. their viral levels have peaked. Um, we don't know that. And I think those trials are actually going on. But remdesivir is difficult to deliver. It has to be given by IV infusion. So you can't just give somebody a remdesivir prescription and send them home with it. So a lot of this is not just that we don't have the antivirals. We, we don't. But the ones we do have, we still don't know very much about how they work and when they would be best deployed. Um, and we don't have enough of them, and they're not available in the type of uh, in the type of way that they could be widely distributed um, to, to really look at that. So we're we're kind of dealing with a, a different set of problems with that. Like for the drugs we do have, um, we don't necessarily know the best way to use them against this novel virus. You know, one thing that I was thinking about is, um, again, kind of harking back to the, the interview where I first heard you, you know, as a virologist, as somebody who studies this, this thing and other critters like this critter, um, you know, another thing that's happened over the last three and a half months is as we've had a chance to watch this critter interact with the human body, it does all kinds of things that just didn't necessarily seem were going to be on the menu initially, ranging from these long haul effects, downstream inflammatory effects, cytokine storms. I think we knew uh, even back then a, a bit about those, but ways in which it may be getting into heart and brain tissue and creating these long term fatigue effects. Are, are you surprised at the kind of critter this is. I mean, it seems to do a lot of different things, maybe more pervasively than another coronavirus might. So yes and no. Um, I'm certainly surprised at all the many different uh, clinical forms that COVID-19 seems to take. Um, some of the things are extremely puzzling, like the, the COVID toes that some children mm -hmm. have reported having, which is probably due to some kind of coagulation abnormality in their blood. Um, but it, it doesn't surprise me at the same time, because we already know that many viruses that we think we understand pretty well, um, we, we do see a broader range of disease severity and symptoms in larger groups of patients. So this virus has infected a lot of people. Um, SARS classic 
by comparison, only infected about 8,000 people. But we know from some animal studies that some of these things have also been seen uh, in in SARS, um, specifically the involvement of heart tissue, of brain tissue, uh, and, and things like that. So it's not surprising that a virus that has infected a lot of people, and the human population is very diverse, both genetically, um, in terms of their behavior, in terms of their diets, in terms of their medical status, in terms of their ages. So we are very diverse people. We're very individual people. And every person is going to interact with this pathogen in a different way. When you have the virus infecting all of these people, um, you're going to see a lot of different outcomes. And I think that can really explain it. One great example of this is the, the West African Ebola epidemic, in which before that we thought Ebola pretty much caused hemorrhagic fever in about half of the people that got it. The rest were infected in the same organs. They had the same sort of infection, but uh, they, they just would die. It was thought before they would develop the hemorrhagic syndrome. In the West African epidemic, we saw a lot of people having heart problems. We saw a lot of people um, having uh, long-term neurological problems. And we saw a lot of people having gastrointestinal disease and people were actually dying of dehydration from vomiting and diarrhea rather than from a hypovolemic shock from hemorrhagic disease. So we know that when a virus gets into a larger population of people, we start to see other outcomes. And I think that's what's happening here. It's just happening on a global scale that we never have observed for another beta coronavirus thus far. You know, uh, Angela Rasmussen, at the beginning, I've been asking you, I was asking you, are you surprised that there aren't more antivirals or other therapeutic drugs? But in a way, I'm kind of falling into a basic human trap. I was thinking about this this morning, that we all know how to lose weight. It's diet and exercise. But nobody really wants to do diet and exercise. So people look around for somebody with some miraculous cure, or some special pill that you can take to lose weight without doing anything like that. Um, and in a way, hand-washing, face covering, social distancing, they're kind of the diet and exercise of the COVID-19 pandemic, right? They're sort of boring, uninteresting, somewhat time-consuming things that work. Um, and, and it seems as though not only are we reacting to them, or many of us are reacting to them the way we react to diet and exercise, but we're also kind of learning the lesson that if you stop exercising and dieting, you'll you put the weight back on. And similarly, if you stop doing social distancing and these other measures, you put the virus back into play. But there's, in a way, I feel like one of our real enemies here is just almost kind of human laziness about doing these not particularly sexy or exciting things. I think there's some of that for sure. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not comfortable. Humans are social creatures and we're used to being able to interact with people on our terms. Um, and it's uncomfortable to wear a mask for long periods of time. I mean, I, I have asthma. I don't like wearing a mask for long periods of time. I still do it because I understand the importance of doing it. Um, I think that a lot of people who might not necessarily understand the importance of doing it, they don't have a lot of COVID necessarily in their community or they don't know anybody who's gotten it. Um, they've never lost a loved one to it, might have a harder time sticking with that because it's it's hard to see if you're not urgently within the situation that that's absolutely necessary to do. And similarly, it's really hard to ask people to to stay home as much as possible and not go to parties, not go to social events, not see their friends or their extended family members for months at a time. I mean, we've never really asked people to do that in my lifetime I think it's really difficult uh, to ask people to do these things that seem sort of simple, 
But over a long time, they're really taking a toll on us as a society. And I think that scientists like myself and physicians need to do a better job of communicating the urgency and the necessity of actually doing this because it, it does make it really hard to control transmission if people aren't following those diet and exercise guidelines. Um, I think that's a great analogy too, by the way. Uh, feel free to steal it. Um, the, um, you know, I talked to Vincent Racaniello last week about this and some of our other guests as well. It seems to me, just so we could just turn to the vaccine front for a moment, that what's happened here, what's, what's on the verge of happening is that we've, for a long time, predating COVID-19, we had a population of people who were either skeptical, suspicious, or downright rejecting of, of vaccines, uh, and they're whatever size of the population uh, they are. But suddenly, I feel like we might have a new group of anti-vaxxers, and there are people who are maybe a little bit more temperamentally and intellectually like me, in the sense that they have a completely different reason or set of reasons for being nervous about vaccines which is that they might be rushed to market. Uh, the, the fact that the FDA uh, was is, appeared to kind of overrule itself today on convalescent therapy is the kind of thing that I think would get a person jittery uh, about the idea, well, if they, can, if they can be kind of steamrollered about that, who's to say they won't be steamrollered uh, about a vaccine that's not ready for general population use. So I, I know, what are your thoughts about that right now? Well, um, full disclosure, I uh, did my PhD in Dr. Racaniello's lab. So um, I have actually discussed this type of thing with him before, but I completely agree with him and you um, in that I think that there is a lot of doubt publicly about how the vaccine approval process is going. And some of that has been uh, worsened by these, this sort of uh, haphazard process of FDA approval and the sort of invasion of politics into this previously scientific space. I think that um, if the FDA is going to approve things based on sort of political marching orders rather than uh, evidence and they contradict themselves, that really erodes public trust in the process that they use to regulate drug and vaccine safety and efficacy. And I think that there are a lot of people, I think you're absolutely right about um, there being a population of people who are, if not anti-vaxxers, skeptical about this process and are reluctant to take a vaccine that has gone through what's perceived to be a rushed or accelerated approval process. Um, right now, I do think that the FDA is planning to approve vaccines based on evidence of safety and efficacy. So that aspect of the vaccine approval process hasn't changed. My biggest concern is that something like the convalescent plasma thing might happen with the vaccine. And if a vaccine is approved before we have evidence of safety and efficacy, and if it turns out not to be very safe or effective, that's going to be a huge problem for public health in general, because people will no longer trust the process. They won't trust the regulatory agencies that oversee the process, and they won't trust the scientists who are providing the data um, as to whether these vaccines are safe or effective. The reality is we know that vaccines, once they have gone through these trials, are usually safe and effective, um, and they are responsible for huge benefits to public health. So if that if that process is undermined by a hasty approval or by being overly politicized, I think that we are looking at years, decades, um, 
maybe even longer of public health problems to come. Right. I mean, you know, it's already challenging enough to get people to get the flu vaccine. Um, I mean, I get it religiously. Uh, but if you really had something that, that went off the jump the rails, uh, you know, in a very, very public way, yeah, the, the skepticism would be driven way, way up. And that would be a very bad consequence. So I'll ask you one last question, which is, and this is I shouldn't be asking a question like this because it's sample size of one. But we seem to have our first documented reinfection case. I think it's somebody in Hong Kong. Uh, and and it, it, it does seem as though it's kind of really the way the immune system should work. The person was symptomatic uh, the first time around, uh, now has a, um, another infection with a slightly different genetic signature, which means that it isn't the first infection, infection that just, you know, submerged for a while and then came back out. But the person's also asymptomatic. So in a way, you look at that and it is a sample size of one and nobody should probably say anything about it, but it almost looks as though that might be the immune system working the way it's supposed to work. You're symptomatic the first time, second time, not so much. Yeah. So um, Dr. Uh, Akiko Iwasaki at Yale had a really great thread on this on Twitter yes. today. I, um, I stole, I stole my observation from her. I should admit that. <laughs> Continue. Yeah, she, she's fantastic. Um, and I thought her explanation was fantastic. So one thing that's really important to note, besides the fact, as you said, that it's an N of one, um, is that that patient did not have detectable antibodies after their first infection. It doesn't mean they didn't have any kind of immune response, just that they had at least a very low level of antibody responses, which is really atypical from what we've seen in these larger studies looking at antibodies in patients who've recovered. Most people do have detectable antibodies. Um, so this patient didn't, and I don't know if that if that caused them, of course, there's no controls, there's no replicates of this. Um, I don't know if that caused them to be susceptible to reinfection, but certainly what Dr. Iwasaki posted today and what you just said, I think sounds re very reasonable. They had a low level um, initial immune response, um, one that was not necessarily detectable. It didn't necessarily protect them from getting infected again, but it did provide uh, a stimulus for the immune system to kick in overdrive and say, hey, we've seen this virus before. Um, let's start making antibodies really fast and let's uh, let's make sure that we clear this virus. And so the patient was asymptomatic the second time around. Um, that's very consistent with how the human immune system works. Uh, whether or not this in individual instance of reinfection means that there's going to be more cases of reinfection or whether this is a very rare sort of outlier type event remains to be seen. But um, the good news is that like all the other studies that have been done so far for immunity, it does suggest that the immunity to this virus is not that different from the immunity we develop to other viruses. All right. Well, Dr. Angela Rasmussen, first day back from vacation. You're already hitting on all cylinders. That's a great news. Uh, virologist and associate research scientist at the Center of Infection and Immunity at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. Thank you so much for taking time out from what I know is a very busy day. Thank you so much for having me. All right, we'll take a break and then we will turn to the world of politics. Not that we can ever really separate these two things. Uh, as you know, I think the president is still speaking. Um, <laughs> maybe I'll just leave it at that. We messed that up so bad. God had to toss 1930 in. As the sun rose on 1968 this morning. Tweet from the John. Please let's not add the civil war. 
All right, we are back. We're switching gears uh, from the pandemic to politics, assuming that there's any difference. Uh, joining us now is Annie Linsky, a national political reporter focused on the 2020 presidential campaign for the Washington Post. When I reconstruct the uh, the shards of my consciousness and my life, it seems possible that I met Annie Linsky at the Polish National Home on election night 2002, but I don't think I can really prove that anymore. Uh, but it is great to have her on the show. Annie Linsky, welcome, in fact, to our show. Hi there. It's good to be with you. And I think your memory is probably accurate. Yes. Uh, so there's a long story behind that, but we're not going to go into it right now. So, um, yeah, it's also very hard to know where to start, but the Republican convention has started in earnest. They have uh, two producers from The Apprentice who are helping them uh, with uh, production and production values, which may explain uh, J- Gary Busey and Mary Lou Henner's very strong showing in the roll call uh, today. Um, there's so much going on, it's hard to know where to jump in, but but maybe quickly just to go back uh, a week, you actually went to Milwaukee, I believe, to cover whatever was there of the Democratic Democratic National Convention. Uh, and I don't, first of all, what was that like? I mean, I've, I've covered a lot of national conventions, but, you know, there were like a lot of people at them. <laughs> well, I, first of all, I should say that um, although the credentials around my neck said Milwaukee and the um, uh, the signs in, in the hall had little pictures of Wisconsin on it, I was actually, in fact, in Wilmington, Delaware for, <laughs> okay. um, <laughs> for the week. It's a very, very, um, it's very easy to get that mixed up, believe it or not, even though the two places are a thousand miles apart. Um, and that's because, as you as you know, the, the Democratic convention, you know, which was supposed to be in July, was moved to August, and then it was supposed to be in Milwaukee. And the main events for that night, um, you know, the speeches by both Kamala Harris and um, Joe Biden were moved to the Chase Center in Wilmington, Delaware. So um, I was holed up in a um, in a hotel in Wilmington for the entire week, um, which was sort of required by the very strict, um, you know, protocols that the DNC required for anybody, about 30 of us who are in the room with uh, Harris and Biden when they accepted their nominations. Well, I know that you can at least, I mean, I'm, people may not be familiar with this particular line of argument, but there there has been a line of argument suggesting that um, that Joe Biden's speech was somehow either recorded and lip synced as a way of in dealing with uh, his loss of mental acuity or something. That this is at least uh, um, an accusation that's been directed uh, at him. Uh, and there, I think, as usual, there's all kinds of weird vis- visible proof. There's something you can see on his lapel or something. I don't know what it is. But anyway, yeah. maybe you can comment on that. Well, it is this sort of conspiracy theory that I was really, you know, surprised and I shouldn't be surprised at this point, but, um, you know, the Republican argument and the argument from the right about Biden has been that he is just so mentally feeble and so kind of out of it that he would be like unwilling and, excuse me, unable to give a speech like the one that he gave on Thursday night. So, you know, when he stands up and he delivers a a fairly, you know, very well-received, powerful address from a podium live, um, of course, there immediately has to be some sort of conspiracy that that wasn't live and that couldn't have been real because this sort of image and this narrative that the right is trying to build around um, Joe Biden's mental faculties would sort of fall apart if he's, you know, able to stand up there and deliver a sort of cogent address. 
Um, so, so, uh, so the, it was just a, a little bit surprising, um, you know, to, like there's, there were some kind of right wing trolls on Twitter who were getting quite a lot of attention. Um, somebody had like tweeted a screen grab of Biden while he was giving his speech and then uh, like another screen grab from five minutes later when he was outside in front of a fairly large audience and in, in the, in the, in the second screen grab, you couldn't see his lapel pin and you couldn't see his watch. And just, you know, based on that, this one person was tweeting images saying it doesn't, you know, it looks to me like, like Biden really didn't give that address live with the sort of underlying, you know, is that supposed to, that was supposed to like bolster this underlying concept that he, he was un, would be unable to give such an address live. Um, and I just found it so uh, just incredible because you know I was there, and and this this tweet was getting you know twenty two thousand retweets. I mean, it was a very like is really making the rounds over the weekend. Um, and so I just sent out you know some of the photographs I had taken just from my iPhone when I was sitting in the room in Wilmington watching Joe Biden stand on stage, you know, quietly. Um, with his hands crossed, you know, before he gave his address and then um, right afterwards. So I it just, you know, it, it, it was incredible. And I, you know, my news organization went to considerable cost to have me be up there in Wilmington for a week purely to be there um, for, you know, a 20-minute speech by him. But it, it, it does remind you why that's important and why it's important to actually physically be there and kind of like bear witness to these events. Right. So uh, speaking of somebody who was just sitting at home watching the whole thing and kind of having a pretty good time, and certainly uh, the battle of the roll calls, there's no question already who, who won that one, the Democratic roll call. I could watch the whole thing all over again. I found it incredibly entertaining and kind of inspiring. And, you know, uh, th there were so many really terrific statements about diversity. Some things work better than others. I don't think having 17 keynote speakers is a good idea, but it, it is like a good thing to do to sort of show a lot of different kinds uh, of faces there. In a way, probably the thing that one might have had the least idea about uh, coming out of that convention is policy. Uh, and and that's not unusual. I mean, I always say that I've co covered a lot of national conventions. And at the end of the week, the only person on the scene that I know who's read the platform is Bill Curry. Uh, and like, <laughs> like nobody else has any idea what the platform is. Now, the Democrats say they have a 92 page platform. I kind of scanned it a little bit. But in a way, that's the thing that in all of the work of showing Biden as a nice and decent man and the party itself as a place whose doors are flung open wide to all kinds of people uh, and, and, and a desire to redress some of the issues that have fueled the Black Lives Matter movement this summer. I mean, that's sort of all there. But if you really wanted to know what they were going to do when they took over, you might have to hunt a little bit harder or maybe watch, you know, the, the Biden-Harris interview. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, policy is not something that Biden or his team wanted to delve into in great detail during the convention. I mean, I think there are a few reasons for that. I mean, the primary one is he wanted to offer a unifying message for a party that is really quite fractured once you get beyond the immediate goal of, um, you, you know, getting rid of Trump and, um uh, putting somebody else in the Oval Office. Um, beyond that, you know, there are some fairly deep fissures. Um, and I think that is where 
um, you know, the the DNC and the Biden campaign made that, you know, they, they certainly touched on policy. They talked about um, and, and referenced, you know, many of Biden's plans, but it, it certainly was not a major focus of the of, of the of the four days. And we're not really expecting much of that, quite frankly, out of the Republican convention either. Um, but, you know, you um, you look at, I think one of the, the policy in particular that was sort of ignored and it was interesting to see how um, the Democrats did this because they had this, you know, e- one of the first evenings was very focused on the imagery and the, um, the some of the rhetoric from the Black Lives Matters mo- movement, you know, even including Biden sitting down and interviewing some of you know, a, a panel of people, including the mother of Eric Gardner, who, who was also mm-hmm. killed at the hands of police. Um, but he was very careful to say that he was in sort of embracing the kind of concept and the, the imagery of the Black Lives Matter movement and some of its leaders without endorsing some of the more um, divisive uh, ideas or the, the sort of ideas that are remain on the fringe, primarily the concept of defunding the police. I mean, even in that panel, as he's speaking to Eric Gardner's mother, um, he, you know, Vice President Joe Biden is saying, look, you know, I, I don't believe in defunding the police. In fact, my plan would provide more funding for the police. And, and also he made some defense of a police officer saying, look, these are not all bad people. You know, mo- the more majority of them in Biden's view are not. And he is sort of con- continuing down this idea of there are a few bad apples in the police department. And that is not the view of many of the protesters who are out in the streets. Um, the, the other piece too that I thought was kind of interesting is the sort of avatars for the Black Lives Matter movement and for um, the, the sort of um, unrest in the cities uh, presented at the convention were, were mayors. So you had Keisha Lance Bonham speaking um, and other mayors. And these are actually the people who are oftentimes the targets of the ire of these um, of these protesters. So the Biden campaign was sort of taking very broad strokes from that movement with, with and trying to stay quite a far away from the, the details of the policy. Yeah, I think also, you know, they, 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 it was a little bit polling driven, too. I, I remember a yeah. column that David Lenhart wrote very early on where he said, look, you know, the Democrats have sort of an issue based advantage and certainly just kind of, you know, a, a dissatisfaction with the incumbent based advantage. Mm-hmm. But here are some areas where they could really squander that advantage. One of them was, for example, abolishing ICE. Uh, another one, I think, might have been Medicare for all as opposed to a public option. It seemed as though they they. They pulled, They looked at their polling. They looked at the stuff that 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 worked pretty well, particularly with maybe Biden curious uh, unaffiliated voters, uh, <laughs> maybe maybe also unhappy Republican uh, voters who don't think that they can vote for Trump, but can they vote for a Democrat? It seemed there was a lot. Yeah. Uh, there was a nice buffet spread out for people like that, and perhaps. Uh, in in a way that disadvantaged the sort of Bernie Sanders, uh, Ocasio-Cortez wing of the party. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you sort of saw that theme going every single night. And it was less through policy, but through like testimonials of people who said that they had voted for Donald Trump and then regretted it. Or sort of, you know, one of the kind of more powerful moments was a woman who said her father had supported and believed Trump, particularly on the pandemic and the coronavirus and, and died. And her sort of, 
you know, moment of the night was saying like he he did have a pre-existing condition, which was believing Donald Trump. And that was sort of the image and the, um, you know, message that the campaign, the Biden campaign was really trying to get across because they very clearly see their path to victory as through the upper Midwest and through bringing back some of these voters who supported, you know, Obama in, in eight and 12 and then abandoned the Democratic ticket in 16. I mean, that that's, it's very clear in sort of many of the, you know, in the convention, but also in many of the decisions that are made by this campaign, that that is what they see as their path. All right, we're going to take a little break, but don't worry. Annie Linsky is coming back uh, for the, uh, the last few minutes of the show. We'll talk a little bit more about what message we're likely to hear during the Republican National Convention from from Donald Trump and Ivanka Trump and Melania Trump and Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump Jr., Lara Trump, Tiffany Trump, Marty Trump, Alder Trump, all the Trumps who have not either written a tell-all book or been taped saying that he's untrustworthy. That method is stepping up to the mic To exercise your freedom and express what you like Because a vote is a voice, is a noise, is a fight Is protected by our first constitutional right so we are back. Uh, it is time for me to say some thank yous. Thank you, Cat Pastor. She's in the studio making the whole show hum and making it possible uh, for the rest of us to work remotely. By the rest of us, I include Betsy Kaplan, the senior producer of the show and the producer of this particular episode. Uh, thanks for making me look good. Uh, and uh, thanks to all the people behind the scenes as well. And thanks to you for listening. Annie Linsky uh, is here with us today. Uh, we've switched over from COVID to politics uh, and and she is fresh from covering uh, one of the manifestations of the Democratic National Convention. So uh, she's national pol political reporter for the uh, Washington Post. So, um, yeah, you know, I mean, it, it is interesting. You know, we were just talking about how in terms of making sort of messaging choices, uh, the Democratic National Convention, I mean, they were trying to speak to everybody or to as many groups as they could. But, you know, they they sort of looked a little bit more towards the center and maybe maybe some of the people that they didn't get the last time around uh, to convert them. You know, the Trump campaign's in sort of a different bind almost. I mean, I was joking going into the break about other Trumps, but really like pretty much the entire family, except uh, Mary and the aunt who's just caught on, uh, caught on uh, the sister who was just caught on, on tape. Uh, they're all speaking. There, there's only one living ex-Republican president. He's not going to be participating in this. And so if you wanted to present a somewhat more diverse, ideologically diverse version of the Republican Party, I'm not even sure how you would do it, but it doesn't look like it's going to be anything more than mostly kind of a, a cult of personality, an affirmation of one Republic, Republican politician as opposed to the whole party. Yeah, I, I think that's that's right. I mean, it is striking the number of people whose last name um, is Trump who will be speaking at this convention. Um, and also, quite frankly, if the last name is not Trump, it's often somebody who has been paid by the Trump family in some way or another. Um, who is up and, uh, and or a former staffer of Trump um, who's speaking. I mean, you know, you usually, you, and you see it when the Democrats did, but you can even look back to, you know, previous Republican conventions. Often, you know, the party will use this moment to really um, elevate some of their more vulnerable members. 
Um, so to me, what has been most striking in looking at the speaking lineup is with the exception of Joni Ernst, who is um, the incumbent uh, senator from Iowa, um, a state that really should not be up for grabs this year, but is, um, you don't have the vulnerable um, uh, uh, Senate candidates who are there. And you do wonder, is that is, does that suggest in some way that these vulnerable candidates worry that the association with Trump is not going to be helpful in their bids for re-election? Um, or is it sort of a choice by the Trump campaign to decide that, look, we want this to be completely and utterly focused on the president? I mean, you know, just now, a few, a few minutes ago, um, Trump stood up and said, as people were chanting four more years, he said, oh, well, why don't we say, you know, 12 more years? That will really drive people crazy. And, you know, I think he's probably right about the impact of a comment like that. Um, so you you um, are seeing an absolute kind of focus on one person in one office in an event where you really normally see a party being elevated and being highlighted. Yeah, and I think to your point, you know, for a Susan Collins, I don't think there's a huge upside to participating in this unless the tone of it, you know, could could be a little bit more malleable than I suspect that it will be. She's probably already gotten as much, you know, out of supporting Donald Trump or not voting to impeach him or whatever you would want to call that. She's going to be able to get in this election. She's going to do other things if she wants to win in Maine. I, I just, you know, it's in terms a striking of striking difference, though, because with, Repo- yeah. with the Democratic convention, there were plenty of people who were furious about not yes. getting, you know, able to have their speaking, their moment at the podium. Um, and we're just not hearing that kind of dynamic on this side. And, you know, I, I was listening to Trump a little bit today before we went on the air. Um, and, uh, you know, it's something I've been thinking about a lot that, you know, famously in his uh, inaugural address, he talked about American carnage, how he had been preceded by American carnage. He was the remedy for the presumptive re- remedy for American carnage. These days, well, particularly over the last four or five days, he's been sort of talking about American, American carnage part two. If Biden takes over, this is going to we're going to have this all over again. The streets are going to run wild. The suburbs are going to be destroyed. I'm wondering whether this is a message that really works for him, because we're kind of in the middle of American carnage and he's president. I mean, we have 175,000 people dead, many of whom probably didn't have to die. We've been through an incredibly turbulent summer. I mean, positioning himself as this person who delivers a time of peace and prosperity, it doesn't really kind of fit reality very well. Yeah, it, it does make their messaging a little bit more complicated, um, and uh, th- that's apparent. Um, even in the sort of Trump slogan, which you, you know was supposed to be "Keep America Great Again," but has sort of veered away from that in this sort of era where there's a pandemic. Um, you know, even Trump's comments today. I mean, he had to account for the fact that the last year, this year has not been good for many Americans. And so his pitch has been more along the lines of, let's get back to where we were before the pandemic hit, Um, which I think is appealing um, if you are able to decide that Trump's um, leadership through the pandemic was not um, consequential in how it has turned out. Right. I mean, his message is 
And yeah, I, I heard that today too. Kind of let's press the reset button. Let's go back to January and, you know, how great things were in January before this China virus came over, as, as he says, which, you know, I mean, I think a lot of his supporters will probably hear that. The rest of us here, let's go back to January before you so badly mismanaged the biggest challenge of your presidency and plunged both the economy and the, our public health uh, into a, a very dangerous state of affairs. Um, so, I mean, a lot of it will be sort of how things are interpreted by the hearers. But we've only got about a minute left. But, I mean, who's who's he going to go after? Who he Who's he going to try to recapture? Who's his target right now as he conducts uh, this four-day campaign commercial? Well, the campaign has been just running such a clear, you know, base election strategy where almost everything that they do and message to is focused on, um, you know, motivating the kind of white working class voters that helped him in, in 2016. Um, you know, there's some effort, I think, to to sort of depress the African-American vote. Um, you see that in the in the speaking lineup too. a, a woman who's um, uh, running uh, to have a congressional seat that includes Baltimore, a black woman who sort of has ads where she's walking through the streets of Baltimore saying, this is a devastated city and it's devastated because of 60 years of, of democratic leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, but that's sort of not aimed as much at appealing to black voters as much as preventing them um, from voting at all. Um, which is, you know, was successful for for Trump in sixteen. So you just really do see them replaying a lot of their twenty sixteen. Right, it worked um, then. Playbook may- and seeing as that is, yeah. a, is there a path too. Yeah. Sorry, it, it, it worked then. Maybe it'll work yes. now. Annie Linsky, I'm so <laughs> exactly. sorry we have to go. Annie Linsky, a political reporter covering the campaign, the 2020 campaign for The Washington Post. Uh, such a great treat to have her on and Angela Rasmussen as well. We will be in tomorrow with a show about numbers. We've got a lot of other interesting shows. Oh, I sound like Trump saying that. We've got some beautiful <laughs> shows. Beautiful shows. They're huge shows all week long. Mama.